mistaken. Thank you. Well, uh, we're going to look at the family life in the rectory with a series of these four talks, which you see on the outline before you is the first one. But we begin with marriage in society before we move to marriage in the rectory in the second talk this morning. Tomorrow morning we'll be looking at the family life uh, in society and the family life in the rectory in the two talks then. The Sydney Morning Herald just the other day recognised, uh, rejoiced, you can only describe it as rejoicing, that the New Zealand census has shown that no religion was now greater than Christianity for the first time in the history of New Zealand since white settlement. Uh, of course this is seen by the progressives as progress and by those of us who are not progressives as regress. But there is the, the that, it was an article that just was chortling. The, the idea that now Christianity is second, no religion is first. And therefore the call, of course, to reduce the privileges of Christianity within the society. Now, as Christianity comes under attack, so does Christian culture. All the things that Christianity brought with it and brings with it then get removed. One phenomena, phenomenon particularly we see is marriage under attack. For while marriage is, uh, has been practiced down the human history and across cultures, it's not an explicitly only Christian thing, Christianity has given it its particular character and shape. The shape that has now been, in our society that is, the shape that has now been challenged and is seriously being discarded by our society, both in practice and in theory. It's been discarded in practice in just so many ways. Uh, Boris Johnson moves into 10 Downing Street with his mistress. There's a change. Donald Trump moves into the White House with a, a track record of just degeneracy, public degeneracy, and multiple marriages. But Whereas another generation, he couldn't get elected with that track record in American culture, now it no longer matters. The royal family, you know, King Edward VIII couldn't become King Edward because of wanting to marry a divorcee. But since then, Prince Charles, Prince Andrew, even the current ones, it's not divorce with Andrew, but Andrew and Harry in their marrying divorcees and in living together before they're married. It's just a changed life at the level of model takers. But it's, it's, it's more widespread and fundamental than just what you see in, in the, the kind of royal family. 34% of Australian children are born outside of marriage in 2010. I'm sure that will have increased. That is, there's a, an American historian that I'd like to read called Gertrude Himmelfarb. I like to read her just because of her name as much as anything. <laughs> it's, a, such a, it's such a good name to give as a... It rolls off the tongue. Anyway, she, uh, a Jewish... New York historian as best I understand. I don't know much about her. But uh, she recounts that in England the rate of children born outside of marriage was stable from 1800 until 1960. It varied between 5 and 8%. Then from the 1960s to 1990 it rose to 35%. So it draws a graph <laughs> in which there's this long line just wiggling along like that and then suddenly up like that. The change has happened and the 1960s were a key point of that change. In New Zealand it's worse because New Zealand is ahead of us in this whole rejection of Christianity but that's only ahead of us. We'll be moving the same direction shortly if the continue, continuation in its trends. Uh, in New Zealand 49% in 2010 were born outside of marriage. So half the children of New Zealand are technically bastards. Some of us on the rugby field feel that that's not just a technicality. But uh, <laughs> there, there is, I've never tried that joke before. I'm not sure it's appropriate, but never mind. Um, 
there is the shift that has taken place. Half the children born outside of marriage. That's a change. Now you can say, yeah, but, but Philip, it, it's, they, it, it's just because people are living together rather than getting married formally, uh, de facto marriages rather than de jure marriages. And say, yes, that's the change. What a dramatic change has happened. Uh, whereas uh, it wasn't many years ago that nearly all uh, marriages in Australia were conducted by religious persons. Today it's 25% and going downwards. Uh, divorce and remarriage has become common. And of course we now have websites that promote sexual immorality, websites that promote adultery. We of course have the masses of pornography that's available, the casual sex that is being promoted and increasing promotion of prostitution which is not called that anymore, it's uh, sex workers and the like. And the movies and the TV, uh, they just assume that people are living together. Uh, they almost assume that you go out on a date and then that will finish by staying overnight. And so the same-sex marriage debate that we had in the last year or so, it's just the, the most recent end point of where we're up to. It's not as if it is something all that fundamentally different. Marriage has been steadily eroded under attack in practice for the last, well, since the 1960s, really. I mean, on the way here, uh, we caught a taxi to the airport and the taxi driver we're talking to and he told me that uh, he, he was just living alone and so I said you never married? He said oh no I'm married and divorced, married young, divorced uh, and he said no I've had three relationships since then, each one's lasted seven years but he said I never seem to be able to get past seven years. Um, he admired Helen and I about the, the lasting of our marriage, you know you guys have obviously been married a long time says something about how I look these days, uh, that he would make such an assumption, however. And so I told him, yes, we've just passed our 50 wedding anniversary. And he said, oh, that's really terrific. He said, I don't know how people do it, uh, you know. And it was quite clear he would like to have done it. He would like, he, he could have, think this was a really wonderful thing. But seven years, you get an itch, he said. But this change in practice is really actually part of a change in theory. It doesn't just happen. There's a whole background historically to it. In terms of the sexual revolution, I produced a book some years ago, I produced is the way of saying it because Tony Payne wrote it, uh, called Pure Sex. Uh, in it there's a chapter on the history of the sexual revolution, the history of sex before the sexual revolution which shows all the different streams that were leading up to from anthropology, from psychology, from psychiatry, from all kinds of sociology, all the kinds of streams that were heading towards the great revolution that took place in 1960. It didn't just happen in the 1960s. It was the culmination of atheists working against Christianity and the Christian model for about 50 years beforehand. And then you had the mass baby boomers, this huge number of people turning 18 to 25 all around the same time as an explosion of wealth happened in our society at the same time and the theory of marriage itself came under concept, under, under real uh, challenge <coughs> by the feminists of the 70s. Uh, it's a different concept of marriage uh, the, the homosexual one was interesting really because they were so desperate to have marriage but they didn't actually want marriage they wanted the legal benefits of marriage they wanted the public acceptance of marriage but they didn't really want to be married we still haven't got the statistics I'm looking forward to seeing them when they come out because I'm fairly sure that there'll be very few homosexual marriages, very few same-sex marriages, there'll be more lesbian ones than gay ones, uh, because the gay lifestyle is infamously uh, promiscuous by its character, and actually there are very few homosexuals in the society, only one or two percent, and marriage is going out of fashion anyway, so the actual reality, it's not going to happen. However, it's going to be five, ten years before we find the statistics, and by then it's all too late, isn't it? But there's a strange conflict that you see for the feminists. Julia Gillard, the one who introduced her boyfriend into the lodge, uh, that one, 
Julia Gillard was asked at the end of her time, she did a tour around Australia uh, and she was at the, uh, the Opera House where she's just being interviewed out on the stage with a thousand of her adoring fans asking her questions. And a little boy asked the question, it was on the uh, ABC, um, uh, of course, um, no, it may not have been on the ABC, but I'm pretty sure it was. And this little boy was lifted up to the microphone and he asked the question, uh, how come you didn't let gay people get married? There was a bit of a cheer in the crowd and a big embarrassment for Julia Gillard. What, why, why didn't she? she? She made some joking comment to give space and time and, and then she said, when I went to university and started forming my political views of the world, we weren't talking about gay marriage. As feminists, we were critiquing marriage. And she went on to say, I have a valuable lifetime commitment and haven't felt the need at any point to make that into a marriage. See, it was a great problem for them. If you don't believe in marriage, but you do believe in the gay lifestyle, and then the gays say, I want to get married, but I'm trying to get rid of marriage. So I can't bring that in. She, later when the, uh, the program with the same sex uh, movement happened, she shifted and showed that she actually would say, yes, we should give the same rights to homosexual people. Um, but in her heart, marriage was never what she wanted to give anybody. She would rather get rid of marriage. See, Gloria Steinem, one of the great American feminists, in 1973 wrote, um, we have to abolish and reform the institution of marriage. By the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. Fascinating how she connects God and marriage. Right? The Christian view of marriage dominated the American scene. We've got to get rid of marriage and God. <laughs> They just have to go. Jermaine uh, Greer, the Australian feminist, which is not really true, she's a, a, a liberationist rather than a feminist. If women are to affect a significant amelioration in their condition, it seems obvious they must refuse to marry, she wrote in 1971. A Andrea Dworkin in 1983, like prostitution, Marriage is an institution that is extremely oppressive and dangerous for women. <coughs> Catherine McKinnon, although there's debate about this quote, said all sex, even consensual sex between a married couple, is an act of violence perpetrated against a woman. See, the feminist leaders were actually restructuring, reframing, and undermining and destroying marriage theoretically. It wasn't just the practicalities of people going through divorce and remarriage. Behind the scenes there is also the people who were theoretically opposed to marriage and saw it as an evil perpetrated by men uh, and oppressing women. Uh, here's the kind of problem then we have for marriage in the 21st century. We have the child-free organisations, uh, not the childless. Uh, childless is a very sad state of life for many people who wish to have children. No, we're talking about the child-free, those who believe it is wrong to have children, that we don't want to have children, that we shouldn't have children. There's the de facto movement that just means people are living together rather than marrying. We have poly polygamy and poly uh, polyamory which is being promoted in the background. But we have, with a large Muslim society of course, uh, a growing Muslim society, a group of people who religiously believe in polygamy. And if we start defending religious rights, we may wind up with polygamy in our society. We don't want that. So how much of religious rights, the present debate is very difficult, you see, and marriage is the point at which it becomes difficult. The same-sex relation and marriage, that no-fault divorce and remarriage, marriage itself is really on the, on the ropes. We are in difficulty on marriage. Now all these kinds of things have been tried, all have been shown to be socially unhelpful, but still people persist in walking away from God 
and so walking away from God's ordered creation. The two things go hand in hand and cannot really be avoided. Uh, the abortion debate of recent times, we had people saying, we don't want your religion, we want science. But when you show them the science, you'd actually be opposed to abortion. Right? Uh, science itself can't actually show whether it's right or wrong to kill. That cannot be just science. But when you see what science does show you about fetal life and embryonic life, you really wouldn't want to be killing it. But we're not allowed to show that. In fact, as one parliamentarian said, that's your science. It's a kind of funny view of science, isn't it? When I have my science, you have your science, everybody has their own science. That's not science, that's bad religion. <laughs> really, it's not even good religion. Professor Linda Waite of Chicago University, she's a sociologist, um, wrote a book helped by Maggie Gallagher. I'm glad to hear that somebody else has somebody who helps to write their books for them. Uh, she wrote a book called The Case for Marriage, showing that, quote, married people live longer, have better health, earn more money, accumulate more wealth, feel more fulfillment in their lives, enjoy more satisfying sexual relationships, and are happier and more successful children than those who remain single, cohabit or get divorced. Uh, of course, she and her book are under terrible challenge today as, as one report after another show how your science can demonstrate her science is not right. The, it, so committed are people to things like abortion, so committed are they against marriage that they give their life to writing articles and degenerating scientific and academic institutions, producing stuff that is really nonsense. Uh, a little while ago, uh, a couple of our uh, academics, three academics who are so sick of this, they're not Christians, at best I know it all, uh, uh, started putting out articles that were completely spurious, total nonsense articles. Uh, they sent about 40 into different academic journals, uh, all in this area of life, in, uh, uh, in gender studies and the like. Um, seven of them got accepted before the Washington Post blew the whistle on them and uh, then everybody, in fact one of them is now suffering, facing uh, being excluded from his university for having done it. Uh, one of the articles they got, they, they got a section, a large section of Mein Kampf from Adolf Hitler, if you didn't know it, uh, and they just changed some of the words, changed some of the details, got rid of some of the Jews and put in things, and got accepted. Uh, I mean, provided you say the, the right things about men and women and what it's like, the politically correct things, the gender studies of universities have been totally academically corrupted. But if you're really committed against marriage, you've got to argue the case. And it's being argued in every academic institution around Australia and, and around the world, the Western world. Now with both practice and theory of marriage under attack, it's important that we consider, reconsider biblical marriage. Got lots of reasons for reconsidering it. Uh, for our own sake, that is our own marriage, it's always important to go back to the Bible again, isn't it? For the patterns we wish to give to our children, for the patterns that we wish to teach our congregations, for the patterns we wish to uphold in our denomination, for the patterns we wish to contend for in our society. We really do need to make sure we have the Bible straight. We have it right as to what God is saying. So there may be nothing new in what I'm going to say today and tomorrow. And in one sense, I'm sorry about that. It's always good to hear new things. Uh, but that's the Athenians. They always like to hear new things. Uh, that's why they will even listen to the gospel for a little while. Um, what we need to do is stand on the solid rock. And when everything else is being dismantled around about us, we really need to stand there. And so it's important to be reminded and to remember what God has said. But if there are new things, well then that's good too. And if there are weird things that I say, then I'm glad that you challenge me. And if there's wrong things that I'm saying, I want you to correct me. The Bible sees marriage as holy. Uh, it's slightly strange, for it's not a sacrament. Uh, it's a creation ordinance, valid for everybody 
with or without the church's blessing, with or without any Christian connection. The two Muslims who marry are married. The, the two animists who marry, they're married. Marriage is something that is human rather than Christian per se. But it is a mystery. Uh, a secret is the word of Mysterian, uh, meaning Christ and the church. In a marriage, there is a secret that really the plan of God was for Christ and his church. That he, rather than just us, is the image of the invisible God. And his marriage was the intention from the beginning. However, marriage is to be honoured by all. Hebrews 13, 4, we're all to hold marriage in honour. And it's not to be entered upon by Christians in, like the pagans do. So there's a little passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's, it's, it's tricky to know how to translate it. Uh, I'm not going to enter into that issue. I'll just read whatever it is the ESV has. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Hey, what is God's will for you? Holiness. That's his will. That you abstain from sexual immorality, because that undermines holiness. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God's not called you called us for impurity, but for holiness. So, in our sexual relationships, however you're going to translate that, holiness is a key element of everything we do. Um, it, it's just tricky to know what to do with it. Control his own body, or take for himself a wife. It sounds like, how could you those two things be in the same translations? But it, that's what it can be. Uh, but if it's take your own wife, then how come he's wronging his brother further down, not his sister? I mean, there's, there's complexities, but whatever the complexities, however you want to sort them out, the point is still the same. That in our bodies, in our sexuality, holiness is what is hoped, required and wanted for us by God. And at that point, we will be different to the Gentiles. We will be different to the pagans, as it puts here. That there is a Christian distinctive at this point, which is the meaning of the word holiness. To be holy is to be different, is to be set apart, is to be distinctive. And a distinctive of being Christian is the way in which we conduct our sexual lives. Now, that for us is a cultural change. You see, back in the cultural Christian period, up to the 1960s, the way Christians conducted their sexual life and the way non-Christians conducted their sexual life at least externally had the same appearance. Indeed, the average age of marriage at the time Helen and I married in the late 60s uh, was 21 for males and 19 for females. Uh, that's ex extraordinary today, isn't it? It's un almost unbelievable that that's the case because today if they're getting married it's 33 and 32 is the kind of age, 32 and 30 is the age that people are marrying today. In our day, the Christians were the slow marriers. We didn't tend to marry till our mid-twenties and we're always thought to be a bit strange that we didn't get married quickly. The reason for the early marriages was, publicly, the only way in which you could, there are a couple of reasons, one of them is publicly, the only way in which you could have sex was by getting married. So the idea of shacking up, that was not available to you. And so if you really wanted to have sex, you, you got married. Another reason, of course, was most people left school at 15 and 16. And so by the time they were 21, they'd been in the workforce, they had money, they'd earned, and houses were affordable and a whole range of other. There are other social factors involved the white was so young for them to be marrying. But the concept that sex was for marriage and marriage was for sex, even though people did play around, that concept was firmly established. Well, that concept's not there at all in the pagan generation now. So our Christian young people are dramatically different and need to be dramatically different. So we actually need to raise them to be different. I grew up in the Jewish part of Sydney. 
the Jews do, they were different. You know, the boys wore hats. No one wore hats in those days. They wore those little skull caps. When it came to around Passover time, they ate different food in the playground than the rest of us. We were all there, hoeing into our ham sandwiches there. We didn't have ham. Uh, but hoeing into our sandwiches, they couldn't eat that. They had to eat this funny Mr. Bread. And they had holidays on different days. They couldn't play sport on Saturdays. They were different. And they knew they were different. And they accepted. Okay, I'm a Jew. I'm not like everybody else. But we Christians, we're just like everybody else. <laughs> well, no, we're not anymore just like anybody else we actually are different and marriage is one of those real distinctives because holiness has got to do with being different and the point of difference between the pagans and the Christians is our sexual relationships but it's emphatically more than that because they're made by God and mustn't be unmade by man whatever therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Our view is that people coming together and not just people coming together, it's God making us one instead of the two. That's the word of Jesus in Matthew 19. If you go back to Matthew 19 and remember his words there on the subject of marriage. He's asked there, I'm going to skip a little bit on the grounds that we're talking here to clergy families and I hope you know your Bibles well enough that I can allude to things rather than read them out all the time to you. But I'll tell you where they are so that you can look them up later if you've forgotten the details. Jesus is asked by the Pharisees who are looking for a loophole in marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so they found Deuteronomy 24 and they're asking what are the terms and conditions upon which you can be divorced. Notice, the word divorce is a tricky word. Uh, it means the right to remarry. It's different from separation. So you can be separated and then remarry. But if you're divorced, sorry, you can be separated and then marry again your partner that you've been separated from or come back together again. It's just separation. But divorce is the declaration that you are now free to marry a third party. And so it has a different character to it. Divorce is not just separation. Divorce is claiming the right to remarry another person. And so they're asking about this, it's a legalistic question they're asking. And Jesus takes them back to God's plan for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, rather than Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 is about dealing with the sinfulness of the human, humankind. Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about what God's ideal for your marriage is. And he speaks of God joining husband and wife together. And it's more than what we can do, it's what God does. And so it's sinful to break it. It's sinful. The kind of absolutist understanding of Jesus seen in the disciples' response of verse 10, they say, if, if such is the case of a man and a wife, well, it's better not to marry. If you can't get out of this, then why? To which Jesus doesn't demure at that point, but rather talks of, of, of eunuchs and being eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. He says, yeah, well, some people, they'll stay single for the sake of the kingdom. Marriage is to be taken with the utmost seriousness for those who wish to live a holy life in Christ Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're committing adultery, even in your heart, tear your eye out, gouge your eye out, chop your hand off. It's better to go into, into life with one eye missing, with a hand missing, than to be thrown into hell. That's pretty serious. Now, as a preacher, I like overstatement. But when I read that passage, I can never think of an overstatement that overstates what's there. You know, that, that is a big overstatement. I mean, you can't say it much more seriously. If you do this, it's better to gouge your eye out. Yeah, I can't think of something that's actually a bit more than that. I think Jesus has topped me. So, to understand his view of marriage, which is a man and a woman, heterosexual, not homosexual, then we, we need to look back at creation. So Jesus combines the first two chapters of Genesis to express his understanding of marriage. Have you not read, 19.4 it's saying, uh, Matthew, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, that's Genesis 1, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, that's the end of Genesis 2. Genesis 1, 
made them male and female. Genesis 2, man shall leave and hold fast. So let's look at what Jesus would want us to be looking at if we're going to think about marriage. So back in Genesis 1.26, then God said, 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Notice several things. One, God made one man. That is, he made one humanity. He created him. Two, humanity is made up of male and female. He created them. He just goes from one to the other immediately in the text. Thirdly, male and female are equally human. Fourthly, male and female are both blessed by God. Fifthly, God's creation, blessing and command to us is to be fruitful, is to multiply, is to fill the earth. That is, procreation is built into our very creation. God's plan was for one humanity to fill the earth by multiplication, by reproduction, and so remain one humanity. This comes from our creation as male and female. Why he made us male and female, not just all androgynous, is because his plan for us was to fill the earth. This is reinforced in Genesis 2 when God creates the helper for the man who will be suitable, who will lead him to leave his parents. God placed the man in charge of the garden and created for him and ultimately from him a helper drawn from him, not foreign to him. None of the animals could work because they weren't him, they weren't humanity. A helper with whom he can create a family. But notice how the passage finishes in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Therefore, he says, no, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. She wasn't created as a second gardener, but as a wife very big difference. A wife with whom he could establish a family. A new family that took precedence over his own family. A man leaving his father and mother is not referring to Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve didn't have father or mother. So it's actually taking the, it's, it's doing what we do, that is take the text and saying no, no, this is about us, not just Adam and Eve, this is about humanity united in one ever-growing reproductive humanity. It's for this very reason that we are male and female, of men and women, so that we can be husband and wife the same and yet different in order to reproduce. This creation view of marriage is further reinforced by the prophet Malachi when criticizing the people for their failure to keep the covenant of God. Come to Malachi. It's a very important passage. Uh, because it's tucked away in Malachi, most people miss it. But it's an important message about marriage. Again, there are translation difficulties. As best, I, my Hebrew is not good, but the best as I can see, the ESV has it right. Uh, the NIV is much easier to preach. God hates divorce. I love it. It's terrific. You can really preach that. It's just that I don't think the Hebrew is saying it. Small detail. You know. Who cares amongst friends? You know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story or a great sermon illustration. Matthew, Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one father? Has not God, God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, 
You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's a very important little passage, my brothers and sisters, to pay attention to in the understanding of God's word. I know there's difficulties in it and you need to work it out very carefully but notice marriage is a is a God-made covenant and God is the witness to whom we will be held account he witnessed it we've got to answer to him as with all covenants the marriage covenant is about faith and faithlessness I've been saying this all my life, it drives me mad. I, I don't know how Helen endures this continuing illustration. But in Hollywood marriages, they always say, I do. In the prayer book, you say, I will. Uh, do you love her? Every man in the room loves her that moment. She's been dressed up like a... It, this is the moment when the whole universe loves her. I do, that says nothing. I will says, for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, until death us do part, I will. It's a very different concept. But I will has got to do with being fulfilled by faithfulness. I do is fulfilled by sensory gratification. Totally different view of marriage. God has united the couple by his spirit notice, because he makes us one. And why does he make us one? Well, the purpose is creating not just offspring, but godly offspring. Divorce does terrible things to children. Holding the best way to raise your children is to love their, 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 their mother or their father. Uh, love your spouse is the best child raising advice you can get. And this requires a unity of faithfulness over time. Faith has always got to do with time. The promises made back there is fulfilled here. That time is where you live in faith. Confidence in the promises, hope for the future that is built on faith. And so it's the wife of your youth that has been now left behind. So I do get sick of seeing, you may not see it around here, but you certainly see it in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Uh, you know, men who would call themselves middle-aged, but they're well into their 50s, uh, quite balding, and so therefore they need to have a little hat on as they drive their sports car with the latest blonde bimbo sitting in the, the seat beside them. And I always think, you silly old goat. And I feel sorry for the girl, and you wonder about the man's children and the wife that has been left behind, the wife of his youth, as he's still trying to hang on to his youth, driving silly sports cars, getting sunburned so <laughs> but notice what he says here divorce by a man is not love it's never love adultery is never love adultery is lust I know it both start with L and there's both got four letters but that's the only similarity he covers his garments with violence we in Australia have got a problem with domestic violence we in Australia need to do something about domestic violence but we won't face up to this violence I mean, I know there are other violences which are dreadful too. And we, but violence actually starts in divorce. That's violent as well. It does terrible things to people. So be faithful. It's an inner spiritual matter. Guard yourself in your spirit to be faithful. It's a very valuable little passage, isn't it? All this agrees completely with Genesis and with Jesus. But there's more to marriage still. There's the heavenly aspect because it symbolises the union between God and Israel, the union between Christ and his church. That's the aspect that's brought out in the marriage section in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, where he says that Genesis is really about Christ and the church. See, in the Old Testament, it appears that God has married Israel. 
but it's, it appears to be a, a powerful metaphor expressing the character of the covenant unity between Yahweh and his people established uh, back there at, the, uh, at Mount Sinai when the people committed adultery on the night in which the marriage was taking place by chasing the golden calf. The golden calf was an adulterous rejection of the covenant at the very time the covenant was being signed. Right? And in the New Testament it appears to be more than a parable, uh, uh, sorry, a, a metaphor, more than a metaphor in the marriage between Christ and his church. It appears as if our marriage is the metaphor of his marriage. His is the real one, ours is the symbol of it. It's like the passage on fatherhood in Ephesians chapter 3, that God is the father from whom all fathers are named. The real genuine father is God, your father and you as fathers, we are but derivative of the true father. Well, it's like that with the marriage. The real marriage ultimately is Christ and the church, which finds its fulfilment in the book of Revelation with the wedding of the Lamb. That is why the real marriage is in the resurrection. And that's why we don't marry in the resurrection. Uh, we don't have children in the resurrection age. Marriage is for this age only. Because, no, that's not right saying. Marriage, uh, our marriage between humans here and now is for this age only. Because our true marriage in heaven, in the resurrection, is with Christ as a church. And so in Luke chapter uh, 20, verses 34, where Jesus is debating with the Sadducees about whose, whose husband, whose, who will, uh, whose wife will she be in the heaven, you know, in the resurrection, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage because, for, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are the sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. The procreative purpose of, of marriage is finished in the resurrection age. That we do not need generation after generation because we are there forever as the sons of God. And so we no longer need to be marrying in order to procreate. The procreative element of marriage, which is fundamental to marriage, is for this world and this time when we in the image of God are to multiply and fill the earth. Notice the strong connection between marriage and children. The age marriage is about children, this age marriage is about children and death. The age to come, it's about being the sons of God and life. So turn with me then back to that passage that we read, Isaiah 62. I was asked by a friend to preach at their wedding a young friend, a very great one. It's a really good minister of the gospel who's now working up in, in uh, Brisbane. Uh, and he asked me to preach at his meeting and he asked would I preach in Isaiah 62. Uh, what's in Isaiah 62? Uh, uh, you of course know, you immediately you got to the top of your head straight off, you know. But I thought, oh, Isaiah 62. Anyway, I looked at it and I thought, marriage and then I looked more and I looked more and he was of course well ahead of me as he is in most things see verse 4 you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What a wonderful positive view of marriage is contained in that, isn't it? You know, we, I, I see our drought and you're living it. I just see it as I go past and you see the land looks desolate, looks sad. And you know when the rains come, the colour changes, doesn't it? The life comes, the whole... It's just the mood, everything changes. Well, Israel was forsaken. Israel was desolate. But God promises a new age when you will not be called desolate, you'll be called the land the Lord delights in. You'll be called... 
<laughs> he uses an extraordinary word. You'll be called married. <laughs> what a positive, extraordinary view of marriage. Now, we rightly have to always be sensitive to the pains and sufferings of a fallen world. So every time we come to Mother's Day, we must take time to, to, to include the many women who aren't mothers and who would like to be mothers, but through all kinds of choices of life and sometimes not choices of life at all. It can be just the body itself, there aren't the babies. And there's always nothing more painful in my conversations with, with women than the women who have longed for babies and not able to have them. Uh, I've had some of them even howl in my presence. It's, it just is such a childlessness like that can be so painful. And similarly, there are people who don't get married and it's not always their choice. It's just things didn't work out for a variety of reasons and so we have to include them and not be rude to them. But one of the problems of over-inclusiveness, if I can put it that way, is we forget to say, being married's good. <laughs> you know, this is, what a wonderful thing. What a joyful thing. What an exciting thing. When I was at New South Wales University, one of the mistakes I made at Uni Church, we had a string of engagements after a few years. You've got a congregation full of young adults, what do you expect? And, uh, and so every, every second week they send me another announcement of another engagement in the church. And I had some people come and complain to me and say, Philip, we're putting pressure upon couples to get engaged. You know, it's, it's becoming the thing you have to do at this stage, etc. And it'd be helpful if we did an announcement. And one of my mistakes was I took a policy of saying, well, okay, we're not going to announce it from here on in. We didn't announce everything. We didn't announce when a person got a job. We didn't announce, there were all kinds of things we didn't announce. Why should we announce this? We didn't do it. That was a big mistake. Because marriage outside is being put on the downer. We are the people who believe in it. And we need to promote it and encourage it and excite it and rejoice by it. And it's a right thing that we do. And for the sake of people whom we're hurting, well, the scripture says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Part of growing in maturity is being excited and pleased for people who have things that you would love to have, but you cannot have for whatever reason. That's, that's growing in maturity, isn't it? Now, I didn't help our congregation by putting that on the back burner. I notice these days, uh, I, we now go to uni church because... No one at Uni Church today was at Uni Church when we were there. That's one of the things about Uni Churches. So it's just down the road from us. So we now go to Uni Church, and I notice they're back announcing engagements, uh, which is popping along at a fairly steady rate uh, at this time of the year. And people are excited, and we should be. You see, what a delight! <laughs> the land, in order to describe how it's not deserted, it's not forsaken. No, it's married. What a wonderful thing to say. The people rejected by God are called married. For marriage is a desirable state of life. For as a bridegroom delights in his young bride and rejoices over his bride, so Yahweh finds delight in Israel and rejoices over his people. This very human joy and delight in marriage, and therefore in a wedding, is reflected, of course, in Jesus' actions in Cana of Galilee and in his teaching. Remember he's teaching about fasting and John the Baptist and feasting and ministry. Uh, Mark chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is joy country. This is happy country. The same point is made in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5 when the bridegroom is to take a year away from active military service and the like to, and we don't know how to translate it, to enjoy or to bring joy to his wife. If it's to enjoy his wife, it speaks of the just sheer pleasure of, of the sexual union. If it's to bring joy to his wife, it's most likely to get her pregnant so that she has the joy of a child. That's why he takes the first year off. Don't know. Depends which day of the week as to which way I want to translate it. 
So, we turn to the Christian marriage in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter. For how are we to conduct our marriages? Are we differently, uh, are we any differently to the created order? You know, we were created this, now we've been recreated, we're different. Or are we any different to the pagan world around about us? No, we're not different to the created order until the resurrection happens. But in this lifetime, we continue in the created order. But what we do that's different is we rediscover the created order. We now put in, put in the right pattern as opposed to the post-fall pattern of life, which the pagans continue. More of that in a day or two, in the next few talks. Here we find the marriage advice in the context of the household codes. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, uh, Titus 2, as well as in the answer to the questions of uh, unspiritual missionary church Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7. In the household codes, the relationship of husband and wives is spelt out in terms of submission and loving responsibility, of the unity between Christ and the church, of the spiritual transformation of God's regenerate people. Now we'll look at more of that after morning tea, when we look at marriage in the rectory. But for now, let's just take a few moments and uh, uh, I think we'll have a time for a question or two if you want to. Um, let's take just a few moments to remind ourselves of marriage, Christian marriage, in our society. You see, in a Christianized culture, the Christian pattern of marriage dominates for the benefit of the society as a whole. Why is it for the benefit of the society's whole? Because it conforms not simply to our Saviour's wish, but also to our Creator's plan. We're actually now driving the car according to the manufacturer's manual, rather than driving the car in defiance of how the manufacturer has made it. And so it's of the benefit of society. Polygamy is a wicked, evil system of social organisation. It does terrible things for women. It's a dreadful thing. And it does dreadful ways of raising children as well. It, it is an awful abuse of God's created order. But of course it's widespread in many, many cultures and nations. Many peoples. When you come to Christ, you see the error of your ways. And you put that right. In the first generation, it's very difficult to put it right because there are multiple wives and the man has to take responsibility for the mistakes he's made but his children must never make those same mistakes and so we see where Christianity goes over a couple of generations polygamy is done away with it's for the good of society it's for the good of the women it's good to the children it's actually good for the men though they're too stupid to understand that but our culture is decreasingly Christian what we now have is a liberal democracy which finds our liberalism becoming increasingly permissive and our democracy is just the rule of the majority and that majority is increasingly hostile to Christian culture. As you can see, no religion reaches 49% of the population. Guess what happens at the next election and the next election? And as you see, we now got the abortion reform bill, at least they changed the name of it, the abortion reform bill passed. You can be assured the euthanasia bill's coming next, isn't it? It's not, this, this non-Christian populace is going to recreate through democracy, and they've got every right, it's a, it's a democracy, they're seeking to change the nature of our laws so as to reinforce their particular agenda of how to live. As an Australian, I accept the rule of law which reflects the liberal democracy. As an Australian Christian, I do exactly the same thing because I'm told to obey the government. But of course, as the government is a liberal democracy, then I have the right to express my view. I went on my very first demonstration the other day um, on the abortion reform bill. But I have the right to do that in Australia. I don't have the right to do that in other cultures. In other cultures I mightn't do it because I don't have the right. But if I am an Australian Christian, the Australians give me the right to vote. In fact, 
they insist I vote. Very difficult in our election. Helen said, which, which of the eighth candidates do you put eighth when you want to put all of them eighth? Because <laughs> our, our local election, that's what it was like, wasn't it, dear? It was, it was just dreadful uh, as to, as to who, who do you choose. There's an alternative to that, stand for Parliament yourself, but I've got better things to do with my life. As an Australian Christian, I wish to work to make our nation's laws as Christian as possible, not to Christianise the nation. You can't have a Christian nation, ultimately. It's the Kingdom of God. The way to Christianise Australia is by preaching the Gospel, evangelising and seeing people converted. That's, how, that's what we do. But it benefits people's lives to have a society that reflects the Creator's wishes. So that is why I will keep voting on certain lines, I will keep advocating certain lines. It's not party politics. Nothing I've said today could give you the possible indication of whether I was pro-Labour or pro-Liberal, or, or national or whatever. You, you, I'm not saying anything. Party politics is not the game. Progressives, that's the game. And that's where we take action. As a Christian, I work and pray as hard as I can to bring all under the sound of the Gospel that they might find forgiveness and regeneration and live to the praise of God's name, find eternal life even in their death. That's the work. Because behind the social changes is the anti-Christian culture that has been pushing for them. Changing the social changes, winning the political debate without changing the culture behind it is futile ultimately. Much more important job is to change hearts and minds for their salvation's sake as well as for our society's sake. And we mustn't replace evangelism with political action. We do not win the kingdom by political action. We win the kingdom by preaching the gospel. When that happened in the 18th century, into the late 18th and early 19th century, the social legal changes took place in Britain and through Britain to Australia. Uh, the Clapham sect were the second generation evangelicals, not the first generation. The first generation were too busy preaching the gospel to get rid of slavery. <laughs> but once the population became very Christian, then the population could see slavery and child, uh, child uh, abuse laws and things like that were obvious. We're back to preaching the gospel, friends. So what did I say to the driver and the taxi? I said, told him, well, the reason our marriage has gone 50 years is because there's a third party in it, <laughs> namely Jesus. And we live for him and we do that together and that's changed our life. And he drew breath and so I went on. I said, you know, <laughs> Jesus brings lots of benefits because he teaches us how to say sorry and he teaches us how to forgive and it's all about grace and forgiveness and mercy because that's the nature of what Jesus in his death for us so we have a whole different way of living and we arrived at the airport do you want to ask questions make comments we've got about five minutes no we've got two minutes I remember we're singing very important I like the singing anyone want to say anything how about I pray and we sing? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your loving kindness in creating us, men and women, that we might be united by you and have children, and that you call us to such faithfulness in our covenant with each other, that we may have godly children. Father, that is extraordinary, and we thank you for it. We thank you for calling us to yourself through the gospel of Jesus that we may be the men and women of faith and faithfulness with godly offspring we thank you father for this it's just remarkable it's, it's just extraordinary and we do praise you that you regenerate us in such direction that our holiness our distinctiveness is to reconnect with the created order to go back beyond the folly of our forefather Adam into the very way in which you have made us to live. 
And we pray, Father, for our sad state of the nation we're in, who've turned their back upon you and are now turning their back upon your created order. And we beg for your mercy, Father, that they will not damage themselves so severely, that they will not have to go into the pig's will before they learn to repent and turn back to you. And we beg, Father, that you would use us to bring this great message of salvation, of forgiveness, of mercy in the death and resurrection of your Son to those around about us, that our land may not be known as desolate and forsaken, but as your delight and married. And we pray it in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen. culture's vision that they put in front of us of marriage and other things that stand and seem to be down my vision and put the right thing in front of our eyes.